We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, thank you for coming in this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. We want to welcome you, welcome you to find a seat there. I'm glad that uh, to report that uh, the languages had their little one yesterday, so uh, that's a blessing. I want to just thank the Lord for that and uh, for your attention in the upcoming moments as we read Scripture and then also as we proclaim the truth from Genesis. We're first going to turn our Bibles to the book, The Song of Solomon. It's after Ecclesiastes, which we've already read, and turn to The Song of Solomon, chapter 1. A short book. Obviously, you can imagine why I've changed the ordering of the service a little bit, so we have the reading at this time. Um, although this chapter is not that big of a deal, but uh, just be aware that uh, presently my plan is to read through the book, and I think it will do us uh, profit, just like the rest of scriptures do profit. A um, couple of things about it. Uh, this book has been mistreated very gravely in the history of interpretation because it has been allegorized to not mean what it means. And so we want to read it as it stands. Now, it's difficult to do that as it stands because... There's a, a, a movement, a flow to this book, and it seems to be the flow is something like this. You have uh, Solomon who has met a young woman, and it's, this will kind of jump into the middle of the courtship, but there's kind of a flow of the courtship, a little bit up and a little bit down. You all who've been through that have experienced that. And then there is, in the later chapters, uh, the actual marriage and consummation of the marriage, and then there's some follow-on to that uh, up through chapter 8. This is not a book about the love of Jesus for his church. Okay, This is the book that extols the virtues and the blessings of marital love, and that is important for us as a church to uphold and to make sure that we present and that you uh, are diligent to protect in your marriage relationships. This is also the last book that we have not read together since 2008 when we began reading the scriptures. This is the last one. After that, after this, we will have read through the entire scriptures together since that time. It's, been, it's taken us a long time. And uh, after this, I may choose some you know, random places to read, but I plan in the big picture to start over again. <laughs> because uh, not all of you were here back in 2008 when we began uh, or have been in all the services, so that's right. But uh, we want to make sure that we 
we do that together. Song of Solomon, the first chapter. This is the Song of Songs, it says, which is Solomon's. Now, when he says the Song of Songs, what he's saying is this is like the ultimate song. This is the best of songs. Uh, And Solomon would have some basis to compare because he wrote quite a few Proverbs, didn't he? And other things like that. So, Song of Songs, verse number two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. We will run after you. The headings in your Bible may be helpful here, although some of them may be incorrect. It's it's another difficulty with interpreting the book is that you have this movement of different speakers and things and there are one or two passages which appear to interpreters to be dreams. And uh, you have a young woman dreaming of her upcoming wedding with her husband. And you can certainly imagine how that would be the case. It says, um, the king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon, for why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions?" If you do not know, O fairest among women, here's the the, uh, husband now, future husband now speaking, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. And then it seems that other speakers here, daughters of Jerusalem, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And then the woman herself. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of En Gedi. And then the beloved. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Imagine, this is, these are the words of lovers to one another. And then the Shulamite again. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. And we'll stop there with chapter two for the next time we have an opportunity to read. With that set aside, and uh, we trust with God's blessing, we turn our attention to the book of Genesis. If you'd turn there to chapters 13 and 14, The lesson that we're going to learn today with Genesis 13 and 14 has to do with the character of a man that we've introduced before, and his name is Abram. And there are a number of things that are brought out here about him by use of a narrative, or by means rather, of a narrative that talks about his moving about in the promised land and a very deep trial that he experienced with his nephew. Lot. And so we've seen the initial Abrahamic covenant, and uh, 
we're going to actually see an application of that covenant, actually a twofold application of it as we come into chapters 13 and 14. In chapter 13, much of the chapter deals with the separation between Abram and Lot in terms of their physical location where they were living. And so let me read a, a bit of this to kind of lay the groundwork for us. It's in chapter 13, verse number 1. It says, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, to the south. Now, I don't know if that confuses you at all, but he went up from Egypt to the south, up perhaps in elevation and up in terms of northerly direction, northeasterly direction, to the southern port part of what we know as the nation of Israel. And then it says, Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south. Some of your Bibles may have the Negev, because that's a transliteration of the word for south or the southern desert in Israel. He went from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. I, I've learned to pronounce that as I, instead of some have pronounced it Ai, but it is what we call a diphthong in English, a two vowels together making one sound, like in the word aisle, A-I-S-L-E. Um, so it's a good way to pronounce it, I. To the place of the altar which he had made there at first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents, now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Follow along, please, as I read, looking at your Bible in verse number 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then parenthetically, really this is how it should kind of be set off, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So they had a kind of complication of other nation states living there. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, I will go to the right. Or if you to the right, I, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan that, was well, uh, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's going to be in chapter 19, so a few chapters in the future. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, so now we shift to, to Abram now. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and to your descendants, notice this word, forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So we'll just pause there for a second. Um, so I, I put the heading here that, Lot and Abram separated from one another, and that's the story 
that's the narrative, but there is something more important in this storyline in terms of a moral and spiritual lesson, and that's what we're going to hopefully get to by the end of our time together here this morning. Abram left Egypt. Remember, he, got, he went there because of a famine, and uh, he went there and, and exercised a very bad part of his character, which was that he lied about his wife in order to save his own skin, and really what he was doing was using his wife to protect himself. Now, whatever happened to women and children, you know, like protect the women and children first, instead of throwing her out there to the wolves, as it were. Uh, what an embarrassment that whole situation was. But God records embarrassments. You and I have had embarrassments, haven't we? A few, more than a few, and that's okay. God is good, and he forgives, and he will let us, you know, come back from that embarrassment and not, you know, be totally trash for the rest of our lives or whatever we want to think when we're in our, in our despondent mode of thinking. Uh, grateful to God for that I am, that he has permitted us to come back from those situations. And those things don't mark us for our whole lives. We'll see what Abram did now after this. So after all that was done, the no faith incident, I call it. Abram was not exercising faith there. After all that was done, he came up to the southern end of Canaan, I call it, modern-day Israel, to where he started and had constructed an altar to worship God. Uh, look in chapter 12, verse 8, just for a moment. Actually, 12, 7. Um, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give you this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then it says he moved, uh, this was the terebinth trees of Morah, by the way, and then he moved from the mountain to the mountains east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So there are two altars, and then it mentions that altar again, of that one that we just looked at in, verse, uh, in chapter 13, and then he's built yet another altar, in, uh, in this chapter, okay, so that's three. But in any case, he comes to the northeast direction from Egypt where Bethel and I are located, somewhat north of modern-day Jerusalem. And if, you were, if you're familiar with how the West Bank looks today, uh, it's, you're probably maybe kind of like me and like a little fuzzy on the geography of that because you kind of focus on geography in terms of kind of how it should be with a one-state solution, but uh, the West Bank, in, in the West Bank, there's a city called Ramallah and uh, north of modern-day Jerusalem, and that'd be nearby to where uh, Abram went at this particular time. So uh, the, Bible, the Bible says then after that that he was very wealthy. In uh, verse number two of chapter 13, he had a lot of money, he had a lot of livestock, and he had a lot of servants, a lot of household servants and people around the larger household and family. Lot also was wealthy, and so the land around them simply could not support their continued existence nearby to each other, so they had to put some, some distance between uh, themselves. Uh, wealth in those days was not measured just in the size of bank accounts or stocks and bonds, but in livestock and people 
And so, as we'll find out, with Abram having a household of over 300 souls, and actually, probably, you know, those are the men that he armed in that incident, there could have likely been a thousand people under his uh, rule, as it were, in his large household. I haven't really thought about it that way before, but that's indeed a possibility. And so you have a lot of people, you have a lot of livestock, and you need grazing ground for that. If you've ever been involved in operation with livestock, you can't just, you know, put them in an apartment. Uh, they, they need space. City living is not for them. So they have to be out and about and need some grazing and water and all that sort of thing. So the two herdsmen, uh, groups of herdsmen, began to conflict with one another and have quarrels because, you know, we want this water, we want this grazing land, we want to transport, you know, between here and there and everything else, and it just got to be too complicated. And so the incident that has occurred here with this conflict because of the blessing that God poured out upon them, isn't that interesting that blessing caused conflict? You got too much stuff, so you either got to move or get rid of stuff or something like that. Uh, This incident highlights the different characters of Abram and Lot. And again, in my notes, I've kind of switched back and forth between Abraham and Abram, although I technically shouldn't do that. Um, But first of all, Abram says to Lot basically two things. He says, first, we don't want to continue to have conflict. And secondly, he says, you take your choice of acreage. You take your land, the one, whatever you want. And what I want to emphasize in today's message is something about the improved character of Abram after his no-faith incident and say that Abram generally had a very good character, and it was marked by a number of things. First of all, Abram was a man of peace. He didn't want conflict. He wanted to avoid unnecessary conflict. It was not appropriate for their workers to be striving with one another because they were brothers, you know, brothers once removed, if you will, you know, uncle and, and, and nephew. But still, that's how they thought of themselves. They were brothers like that, regardless of the generational gap. They didn't have any beef with each other. They shouldn't have any conflict. Their servants should not have any conflict either. And so they have to apply some solution to this to avoid the conflict. Abram is not a fighter. He's not pugnacious. He's not looking for trouble. He's not looking for revenge. File those away. Those kinds of things are not to be in our character as people created in the image of God. Vengeance belongs to God. He will take care of those sorts of things, not us. Secondly, he graciously offers the first choice of land to his nephew. Now, I say graciously, he's being kind, truly kind. He's not just saying that just to, be a, to have the appearance of kindness. But if you think about it, Lot should have said, no, uncle, you're the older, you're the elder, you have the gray hairs, you take what you think is best for the both of us, and then I will take the rest. I am not in first place here. You are. Abram was due the first dibs, but he willingly offered the first choice to the younger man. Whatever you pick, Abram said, I will move in the other direction to put the needed space between us. And so Abram's character is not only a character of peace, but one of selfless service to another person who didn't deserve it. 
Now, on the other side of the coin, we have Lot's character. Now, you look at Lot, he, he used his eyeballs, and he looked and he saw, okay, it's a little brown over there, and it's a green over here, and I've got, hmm, I, I like green because I've got these animals, so I'm going to take that. And so you'd say, well, he made a wise business decision by selecting the green plain of the Jordan River to the east of where they were. But one problem is he made that at the expense of his uncle. Wise business decision made at the expense of another person is not pleasing to God. But another problem is that it put him on a trajectory towards a very wicked place. The Bible is very clear. Now, you might not initially connect those two things together, but you've got to read these verses as a package. And the Bible is telling us he chose this place and he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. And next verse, but the men there were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So bad deal here in Lot's life. So he selfishly makes this choice at the expense of his uncle and all of his people. He moves towards Sodom where the people were exceedingly wicked. You know, these were not run-of-the-mill sinners. Everybody is that, minimally. You know, people that don't love God, that, that think only about themselves. Uh, even when they do good works, they're really thinking about how that helps them to feel and, and uh, maybe, you know, how it helps the others. Well, because they're, they're people made in the image of God. Everybody can do good things because God is good, and he's built something of that into us. But everybody can also do and also does evil things and for evil motivations. But in any case, these were not run-of-the-mill sinners. These were wicked, very exceedingly wicked people. The third problem with his choice is that he became entangled in a war between city-states that will bring us to, in chapter 14, the news that he's kidnapped, held hostage, taken away from his place, and he becomes us collateral damage in that warfare. It's kind of like, you know, today, or maybe last January, moving your tent into Ukraine. Maybe not the wisest idea, knowing what's coming uh, to that nation. He could have avoided it and not become involved with them. Of course, not all catastrophe or collateral damage is avoidable, but it is and certainly was in this case. Now, I have said before that I cannot fault Lot for living in Sodom. Now, I'm getting ahead of the text here, but it says he moves his tent toward that direction. We find out later on that he's actually in the city and I've said before, I don't fault him just for living there in that place. Just living there doesn't mean that he condoned all that went on there. Lot's righteous soul. Now, I'm going to modify that statement, okay? I'm going to expand on it and improve what I have said to you before. But here's how I'm going to do it. First of all, I'm still not down on Lot in this aspect that he was there in the city. Lot's righteous soul was vexed every day. Uh, prove that, you say. Okay, I shall. Second Peter. Turn your Bible to Second Peter chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. God knows how to deliver the righteous from 
evil things, it says, because in, in, he delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, that's what the Bible says. That's not what we might say just by looking at Genesis 13 and 14, but that's what the Scripture says in its inspired, known, knowledgeable commentary on the situation. That righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So he existed in a state of almost seemingly daily, never-ending torment about the wickedness that he saw there. And I've often told you folks and myself, we too live in a place where our souls are tormented daily by the things that we read and experience, see on the news, hear in the, from the voting booth, and all of that. Just because we live in the United States where immorality runs rampant or we live in Ann Arbor where God is not acknowledged, that doesn't mean we are sinful just for being here. But I would improve my statement of blameworthiness to Lot by saying it this way. I can't fault Lot for living in Sodom if that's the only fact that I have if I hold that in isolation from anything else. But I can fault him for moving in that direction in the first place. How he got there, why he chose that direction is part of the problem, is a real problem. Given that he had freedom to choose where to pitch his tent. Abram said, you go there, I'll go there. You go up there, I'll go down there. He had freedom. He didn't have to set his eyes toward one of the most wretched hives of villainy in that place, okay? We know he was moving in a dangerous direction. Now, and listen, he wasn't, as far as we can tell, in fact, we can tell this very well, he wasn't moving there to be a pastor or missionary, okay? I mean, it's... it's, possible, and it has happened, that people have chosen to move to sin cities to be a pastor or a missionary there, well, because they need to be saved too, but that wasn't his intention. His intention was, I've got green land here, and I'm going to have all what I need for my uh, burgeoning livestock business to multiply. Well, um, wherever we are in our lives, we ought to know that it is wrong to move in a direction toward sin. I'm not just talking about moving your physical location. I'm talking about where your mind is going, where your thoughts are moving, where your desires are aiming. You know that you are not supposed to move toward sin. Instead, you should be moving away from it so that you can keep yourself and your family safe. Lot later moved into the city of Sodom, chapter 14, verse 12, indicates to us. And then he became, in chapter by chapter 19, one of its leaders. He sat in the gate. That's a uh, reference to being an elder in the city. And I'd like to think that he was opposing the bad direction of the city by doing that. But it appears that he did not have any impact whatsoever. I take a little bit of a lesson from that, my friends. Our feeble efforts to reform society by using the ballot box or using the machinery of government will invariably fail. 
you can't, you can't beat back the culture with government because culture drives the government. Uh, government cannot change the heart of people to become righteous, but the gospel can do that. And yet only a small number of people are truly transformed by the gospel. And if you compare the power of the gospel with the power of government, the power of the gospel is far greater. Government has far less ability and power. It will not succeed in making good people out of bad, moral out of immoral, just out of unjust. And I just, I, I tell you, there's sometimes the only way to solve the problem of, of a person who is wicked is just to either incarcerate them or the death penalty for what they are doing. And I think some of us, some of us in the society today have been so isolated from reality that we do not realize how bad people really are. You read the Gulag Archipelago. You read any number of books of that genre that are about the atrocities that have been worked from one human to another. The systems of oppression that have been set up to harm other people and to benefit one group at the expense of another. You think about criminals. You think about people who have tortured. You think about abortionists who have torn limb from limb, babies out of their mother's womb. And you begin to realize the depth of human depravity that goes on day by day by day. The government has had no power to stop that. In fact, in some cases, it has encouraged those atrocities to occur. I mean, in, in fact, many of those atrocities were at the hands of people through the means of government. Stalin's Russia, for example, the millions of people that were starved and killed. Tons of people being disappeared in communist countries today and never reappearing again. Abortions throughout the world topping probably one billion souls. People are evil. And to the extent that they're good in your immediate circle, you best get on your knees and thank God that you're not the victim of some crime, of some terrible oppression, or something like that. But government can't solve those problems. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only power of God to salvation from sin. And by the way, we're not just talking about going to heaven when we die. Our brother who has been out in the streets in Ann Arbor evangelizing and helping us with that has reminded us, our brothers have reminded us of this. Um, salvation is from sin right now. You are saved not only to go to heaven and, and, and like live however you want to right now, but you're saved from sin and its grip on your soul, the darkness that it creates in your mind and your eyes. And Jesus has paid the penalty for sin and allows you to come to him in faith and he will wash you clean and bring you new life and give you eyes to see and loose the grip of sin on your life. In fact, break its, its power, its domineering power over you. So Lot couldn't solve the problems of that city, and uh, he got into big trouble there on a number of occasions. Here's the first. So, But before we get there in chapter 14, I'll just mention the restatement of the promise to Abram in uh, the end of chapter 13. And uh, we read it, 
so the Lord says, you know, look at all this place where you are. This is where I'm, this is the land I'm giving you. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. That's saying something because poor old Abram didn't have any yet, did he? We have to wait quite some years before he's going to be able to have even one descendant, much less those as numerous as the sands of the seashore or the stars of the heavens. And he says, God says to him, look through this land. Walk up and down through it. Take a tour. And so Abram moved uh, his tent there. And uh, I just mentioned that the promise is reiterated throughout the Old Testament. And I think looking at the clock, I won't have time to go through all of those, but I encourage you to look at them. The Bible is crystal clear that God deeded the land that we're talking about to the nation of Israel. And uh, the large number of descendants that he would eventually have would call that his homeland. Reiterated in Genesis 15, 17, Psalm 72, Zechariah 9. And I, I was thinking, where else in the Bible? And then it hit me the other day. Oh, yes, the whole two-chapter section from Ezekiel 47 to 48 that talks about the new division of the land in the millennial kingdom. That much time will have passed and that far into the future when the kingdom comes that Israel will still have this land. Now, Abram had built altars, we said, in chapter 12, 7, chapter 12, 8, chapter 13, 4, says he came back to that altar and called on the name of the Lord. Obviously, he was a worshiper of God. And then in 1318, he moved his tent, and he built an altar there to the Lord. He's just thinking right now, we talk about local churches. Well, he had local altars. <laughs> Wherever he was, he built an altar. Why? Because he was a man who was a worshiper of God, and during that time, how you expressed worship to God was not raising up a church. It was not, uh, you know just sitting at home or whatever, but it was having an altar and, and offering animal sacrifice on it as the appropriate mode of worship during that era for God. So Abram was a man concerned with the atonement of sin and the proper worship of God. I've, I've highlighted those in the notes. Well, actually, I might have highlighted them only in my copy of the notes, but maybe you could highlight them in yours. Abraham was a man of peace. Abram's attitude was one of selfless service. Abram was a man concerned with the atonement and with right worship of God. But there are some other character traits that he has that we see in chapter 14. And these character traits are what I'm trying to get across to you today so that you ask yourself, am I like that man? I mean, if you share the faith of Abram in the seed of Abraham, Jesus, then you should have kind of the character of this man, an early example of good character. Not perfect, had his embarrassments, so have we, but we can follow in his faith. Chapter 14, let's read there. It came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedor, Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. I make that I in t instead of title. I make it sound like an E, as that's how it's read when a Hebrew person reads it. Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedor Laomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedor Laomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, 
Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shava Kirathayim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. That's verse 6. Then 7. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against, here we go again, Kedor Laramer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, uh, that's or Goyim, peoples, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Uh Uh-oh. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. These are three brothers here, Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner, allied to Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, just pause there for a moment, you have two confederations of cities that were at war with one another, cities or city-states, and I'm just going to call them the four kings versus the five because it's too complicated to say all their names, okay? Even this Kedor Laomer guy, um, you know, tough names to pronounce. So the four kings won the battle and subjugated the five kings in their city-states for 12 years. So the losers paid tribute, some kind of tax, to the winners. And then that five-king group decided to uh, uh, rebel against the subjugation of the four kings. And so the next year, the four kings went to battle against several other area cities and uh, the, four, the five kings joined the battle to finish throwing off the foreign power, but they did not prevail. They fled, the Bible says, and according to chapter 14 and verse number 10. And the, salt, or the uh, asphalt pits got kind of mixed up in that situation as well. And so the goods and some of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were carried off by their enemies. That's how they did it back in those days. Still it's done today, by the way in some circles or places in our world. So Abram learned of this while he was in Hebron at the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite. And so we carry on then with the narrative. It says in verse 14, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So there he he got his young men who were capable and the older ones that were more experienced and they went on an adventure. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laramer and the kings who were with him. I'm going to pause there again just for a moment. Um, So... He takes the three brothers, uh, the Amorite brothers, with him, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, and he travels as far north as Dan and then beyond. Now, I don't think I mentioned this, but he had moved from Bethel and Ai, north of Jerusalem, to Hebron, south of Jerusalem, about an equal distance south, roughly speaking. And so he had to travel at least 120 miles to the north to get to Dan, and then it was 
you know, beyond that to the north and to the east to finish this campaign. But he did, and he was able to return all the people and the spoils to their original owners. So here's another aspect of Abram's character. This fellow was not only courageous and valiant, but he was also just. He had said, look, they don't deserve to have that worked upon them. I'm bringing them back. He was valiant enough even to help someone who had desired ease and was content to dwell with evil. His name was Lot. You know, I wonder if Abram you know, said to himself, I could have predicted. I could have told you. Moving into Sodom was not a great, great idea. Now, we're going to study next time, Lord willing, verses 18 to 20 about Abraham's uh, incident with Melchizedek. We're not going to talk about that today, so just set that aside. Um, and this king of Sodom comes out to greet him, to give him thanks. And it says in verse 21, Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who were with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So he cared for those that came with him. But he didn't need anything. He was wealthy, and he had some other thoughts about this as well. He offered, uh, this king offered Abram all the spoils, but Abram basically refused the offer. Why? Well, he was a man of integrity and benevolence, I believe. Benevolence in that he just went on a huge journey over 250 miles with all of his servants. I mean, the time, the expense of that to retrieve his nephew, the generosity of what he did. He was free of covetousness. He didn't just want to do this for the money or, or say thank you very much. What is covetousness? It's an inordinate desire for wealth or an inordinate desire for another person's possessions. And here's the mark of this, the real kind of distinguishing mark of what is covetousness. That is when that desire outstrips your love for God, then it becomes an inordinate desire, an out-of-order desire. That's the definition of it. Now, he did allow, Abram did allow for some remuneration. I mean, the, the fellows needed to eat their food on the way, uh, you know, back and forth to this place. And so uh, he wanted also to give some remuneration, some pay to the brothers who went with him to the battle. This wasn't their battle. It was they're sticking their necks out because they're allies with Abram. Um, but he refused anything else from them because he did not want them to be able to say that we are the source of his riches. He was already wealthy enough, but more important than any other character trait that I've listed for Abram is this. He wanted God to have the honor of supplying all of his wealth, all of his needs, all of his blessings. God had promised to bless him. God could choose to do that through other humans, but Abram did not want the blessedness to be so directly attributable to these people who had been foolish and actually, I mean, unbelieving. The king of Sodom doesn't become some 
upstanding citizen and character just because he came out to thank Abram for doing what only Abram could have done to help him. This king of Sodom was still the king of a very wicked city, and it didn't get any better. He could have said thank you and said, we're going to be more like Abram now. We're going to believe in your God, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. But no, he didn't do that, and by chapter 19, the city has to be destroyed because of how they ran it down morally into the ground. So God gets the honor in Abram's life. Notice that the entire episode here in which the four kings treated the the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and specifically Lot, they treated him with with just despite. They kidnapped him, took him away, and this touched Abram. So we have here an application, if you will, of the blessing and cursing principle of the Abrahamic covenant. You treat Abram lightly, you curse Abram, I will curse you, Kedor Laomer, and your friends. They too then felt the weight of God's covenant with Abraham. You see that? I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and this curse happens to be repeated throughout world history. It's repeated with Egypt. I mean, it took a long time, but God did destroy Egypt after they would not let his people go. Various oppressors in the judges, several of Judah's kings wrought wrath upon their enemies. Even some of the ones that were unbelieving, like a Jehu and others, wrought difficulties upon the enemies of God's people. Even during the intertestamental period, people who stood up against Israel eventually were extinguished. We see parallels even in modern history. Those who sought to destroy the Jewish people in Germany themselves were destroyed. It might take time, but you don't mess with God's anointed. Now, as we conclude, we don't find the gospel in every passage of the scriptures, but what we do find, especially in the Old Testament, can lead us to salvation in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul says that very thing to Timothy. He says, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation, and that they are. Furthermore, in this, like in this portion, we find things that reveal God's evaluation of different ways of living that can help us avoid what I've called boneheaded decisions. The translation of that is stupid. Like those made by Lot. Why do you do that, Lot? Well, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. But by looking back, he saw that it was really a boneheaded decision to move himself towards wickedness and to get himself into that trouble and have to be rescued twice, once here in chapter 14 and then the second time by angelic deliverers in chapter 19. He should have moved out after this. He'd be like, I'm done with this place. I'm out of here. But he didn't do it. Reading scripture and thinking about what we read will help us to gain godly experience without having to go through 
so many of those boneheaded decisions. Oh, we'll make a few, I'm sure. But I'm advising you, if you're wise in the scriptures, you will avoid a whole lot of headache in your life by walking closer to God. There's plenty of enough headache in life without adding any more unnecessary. Would you agree? Yeah. All kinds of pain and suffering and and, uh, and, and depression and difficulties and health problems and all of that with, and, you know, besides the vexing of the world upon us. Enough of that. We don't need to add more boneheaded decisions to our, to our life. Take Abram's character as another main lesson here. He was peaceable. He was generous. He was kind. He was a man of God-centered worship and integrity. He was one who wanted God to be honored in his life above everything else. He recognized that the blessings in his life came from God. Where'd this come from? Well, no doubt it started in his relationship with God. He was a man of faith. He listened to God when God said, get up out of Ur of the Chaldees and leave. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my, my man, and you're going to go to the place that I'm going to show you. And he believed and he obeyed. God blessed him in that faith. Each of us ought to look at our lives and ask ourselves, do we have that relationship with God which works out into that kind of character like Abram had, the man of peace, the man concerned with atonement and proper worship of God, the one who wanted God to be honored above everything else, the one who was generous, kind, valiant, courageous, and just. That's the kind of man, the kind of woman, the kind of young person we need to be based on that relationship that we have with the Lord. May it be so. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you today for this word. I ask that you would put it into our hearts and have the word do its work, only the work that you can do by your spirit. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.